Hey everybody, today I'm going to play my interview with Bob Hart. He's the author of A New Look at Humanism, the book I referenced in the last episode that's a foundation of the show. Uh, the recording picks up in the middle of the conversation, so I'm going to summarize the first part right now where Bob told me about his early career and where the book came from. In a nutshell, he was raised in the Midwest and went to Harvard for his undergraduate work in the early 1950s. Uh, this is when Walter Gropius was there running the architecture department. After he graduated, he went to work in an architect's office and realized that a lot of the stuff he'd learned in school, all the high-minded theories and concepts, weren't actually practical in the real world. He thought he needed to re-educate himself, so he started reading and studying outside of the office so that he could be more competent. He made learning an integral part of his practice and found over time that the human sciences like psychology, evolutionary biology, ecology, etc. offered insights into why we desire and respond to our environments the ways that we do and how those desires ultimately shape our designs. So when he started managing teams at work, he would find opportunities to incorporate some of this new science or these new ideas into his workflow, and he'd make presentations and give notes to his colleagues about all the stuff that he was learning so that they could incorporate it into the work. This went on for decades, and eventually he compiled all of his notes and put them all together for a book. Uh, now that you know the backstory, I hope you enjoy this interview with Bob Hart. Over time, all of this became this book that you've published uh, called A New Look at Humanism. So just starting with the title, let's unpack that a little bit. What are you talking about when you say humanism and where does the new look come in? Okay, humanism is um, is a term that has had a lot of uh, – has a long history and has a lot of – carries a lot of baggage and – but when you when you get rid of the <clears throat> you get rid of the overtones of uh, the moral uh, of moral overtones and philosophical ones, and you go back to the meaning of the term, it it just it means uh, it means uh, putting human values and interests at the center of your thinking. Uh, then <clears throat> specifically. Uh, I use that to mean uh, refreshing the term humanism with contemporary human sciences. And, and again, specifically, that means re recognizing that uh, what the sciences are learning about our inner worlds, our restless inner worlds, you know, memories, beliefs, their flows of perception, body chemistry, thoughts, feelings, most of it below the level of consciousness, adds up to a context, really the primary context that gives meaning and value to the places we build. In other words, uh, in other words, in a sense, we experience our environments through a lens of ourselves. Now, does that mean that humanity and ecology are separate from each other because we're using them in different uh we use different words in discussing how we study them but are we are those ideas separate from in, from one another or are they integrated well i consider ecology a human science as well as a natural science because as a practical matter 
as I said, the uh, human impacts in, in an ecosystem uh, are the most powerful. Not, no, not quite true, but are very powerful. Uh, and <clears throat> and so and so everything we we can't understand what we're designing, what impact it's going to have on the world, on our clients, on the public, unless we put it in an ecological context. Uh, Ian McHard showed, showed how to do that on a practical basis in an office. In offices, wrote a good book about it. Um, it's not hard to do. It it it, it means being aware of what's going on in the world, uh, in the natural world, and as at the same time uh, as we're uh, building, and and by extending the term ecology meaning to include our not just not just our natural environments but to our our built environments um, we can really really understand in advance uh, what's the, what is this world we're building in and so you begin the book with the questions, what's it like to be there and what's going on in the mind and body? And to answer these questions, you lay out a framework for understanding how our origins, which is our far-flung genetic past, have crafted our predilections, our tendencies to think and behave in certain ways. So what did you learn about how we've become ourselves over time? Well, <clears throat> I think the simplest way to put it is that um, is the way Steven Pinker, cognitive scientist, a cognitive scientist, Steven Pinker, uh, put it one time. Uh, I'm going to quote: "Genes selfishly spread themselves. They do it by the way they build our brains, by making us enjoy life, health, sex, friends, and children. The genes buy a lottery ticket." for representation in the next generation with odds that were favorable in the environment in which we evolved. In other words, when our thoughts and actions trigger the feeling that we call enjoyment or pleasure, or really more accurately, the reward circuits and body chemistry and emotions that uh, underlie them, uh, we're in a sense winning Pinker's lottery. So in this sense, the pursuit of happiness is not an abstraction, but it's a repetition of these kinds of practical uh, pleasures. And the way that works in architecture has been well summed up uh, by a wonderful book called The Origins of Architectural Pleasure, written by architect Professor Grant Hildebrand. Uh, and his point is when we have this feeling of pleasure in architecture, uh, it, it happens when we feel ourselves gaining something that we want, or we feel like we or our families uh, are fully, uh, fulfilling uh, a need or desire. In other words, we feel like we're mastering our environment or, han or enhancing our lives, we're surviving, prospering, and winning lottery in the broadest sense. Then when you dig deeper into an evolved mind and body, uh, you find a core of shared human nature that underlies our 
uh, cultures and personalities. Some people doubt that, uh, but just look around. We're so much alike that we've created global ideologies and religions. And in terms of architecture designs, like those uh, originating in classical Greece and Rome, are worldwide standards of beauty, like the Taj Mahal or English landscapes. They've commanded respect and inspired imitation across cultures and continents, revolutions, millennia, and of course, they still do. So it's that human nature that is, you can, you can, uh, when you explore deeper into the connections between human evolution and architecture, it's that uh, human nature uh, in the form of predilections, uh, this inboard, the predisposition to think and act in certain ways and not in others, which we, we feel them as desires, impulses, needs, imperatives, intuitions. They're not hardwired. Some people call them hardwired. They're not because of the way the brain works, but uh, that can be misleading. So uh, it's best to think of them as innate or inboard or prepared neural networks in the mind and body. And you see them at work everyday life and in our design vocabularies. Uh, an example is the almost universal preference for woodland and savanna landscapes. Another is the impulse to find or to provide shelter, which is our business, that provides safety with an outlook, a familiar refuge and prospect concept that's uh, in regular use. And both of those ideas, of course, are masterfully laid out, are masterfully applied in such places as Olmsted's um, parks. And there are many more. Yeah, right. So we, we get to an interesting spot here in thinking and in conversation um, because we have these predilections and ultimately that's what we are designing for. We're designing for what we're predisposed or or um, culturally um, conditioned to desire. Um, but the, the fork is in this idea or these separate ideas of mind and the body. And somehow those end up becoming different subjects, but but they're not. You call this the psychophysical framework. And how do you approach that division in your book? You can use the word separately uh, sometimes to clarify ideas. And that's what I did in the book. Uh, after describing or, or our origins in uh, in um, uh, evolution, which of course are much more complicated than we've talked about today, uh, I, I have a section of the book called uh, "The Mind That Encounters Architecture," and to give you an idea of what I what I talked about there and uh, what I was trying to get at is uh, well, first let's take. Uh, uh, orientation. Now, orientation feels like a like the mind at work, but of course the body's involved. And um, we, the way that works is we create in our minds. It feels like our minds. Um, maps of both ourselves, uh, but also our surroundings. Uh, and the way we do that. Is, is is spelled out in a in, in a study uh, 
called The Image of the City, <clears throat> a book by urban designer Kevin Lynch at MIT. He seemed to uncover a part of an inborn mapping system. Uh, he was writing about the uh, deep-seated urgency we have for orientation in any environment we're in. Uh, and he he wrote about a con he, he worked out a concept of the legibility of cities, starting with paths, edges, districts, nodes, landmarks, and later it was much expanded. And it was very quickly uh, the, became very quickly became a well-used part of the wisdom of the design professions. Uh, and the neurosciences since then have shown a surprising consistency from person to person. But that's just one part of the kind of mapping uh, that we do. There, there are many others. Another thing we do, we feel like it's in our minds, but again, uh, the uh, the origins feel like on our inner minds, but, but our bodies are intimately involved. And that is, we're born symbol makers, and we're born storytellers. Um, we find stories and symbols in every in all of our built environments because we're looking for them. I mean, we're looking for them because they're in us, and uh, we're redisposed to uncover uh, origins, causes, sequences, surprises, resolutions, and finally composing our lives into orderly narrative flows. And we do the same with architecture. In this sense, uh, the architectural design process parallels the creativity of the uh, performing and literary arts because we're all creating narratives of human experience. Uh, in effect, I like, I, I like to put it this way, that we're all working with days in the life of people. And when the human stories in the built environment are missing, Many of the pleasures of architecture go missing with them. But something that's that's woven into this conversation that we haven't touched on yet is the fact that we're also talking about the social sciences and the fact that it's not just me and my mind and my body interacting with an ecology, but it's all of us interacting with each other. And that's essential when you start talking about um, our storytelling nature and our um, language developing nature, because as you said, I, I and my body and I and my body have this sense of, say, front, back, left, right, up, down with respect to gravity, front, back with respect to um, my face and what I can see. And that sense really only becomes something that's defined as up, down, left, right, forward and back as we have to start communicating with each other about where things are. Um, and I guess in a, in an evolutionary sense, that might be, you know, where food is or where, um, where a threat might be coming from. But all that to say that it seems like there's this, not only this sense of where I am, but also a sense of, of where we are and where a sense of um, here and there with respect to us and not just myself. Is that, is that right? That's, well, that's a good, you're making several good points there. One is, uh, first we should point out that we evolve as individuals, not as groups. Uh, but the impact of involving as individuals uh, it, it can become the evolution of groups through uh, culture, uh, an evolution of culture. But the, 
the, the bigger point is that to talk about built environments, um, you cannot exclude that we live in a human environment, in a human in, or several human environments and natural environments. There, uh, that's part of our co-evolution co with the natural. We have co-evolved, excuse, with the natural world, and we have co-evolved with you know several, several sometimes hundreds of other people. And so those are inherent in all of our, in the way our predilections have developed. They're inherent in the, the way our minds and bodies have developed, too, right? You wrote this book because obviously you felt like this was a part of life that's missing in the study and practice of architecture. Now, do you see that this is something in common across all professions, or is architecture behind? Are there other professions that are already using this approach and this type of knowledge to advance their causes? Oh, well, Adam, the, the uh, entertainment and marketing professions are way ahead of us, and the political uh, campaigners are way ahead of it. Architecture is impoverished in its knowledge of the human body. I mean, it's embarrassing uh, to be in meetings um, where architects are making presentations that ha when they haven't been uh, that haven't been informed by uh, by what's going on in the world now. Uh, knowledge the knowledge is being developed in the world now. Uh, the others are way ahead of us and have been for years. I mean, look at what Disney has done, for example, just as, as one example. I mean, that, their success. They, they, those are the guys that are creating our culture, and uh, they're very successful at it. And and they're actually the marketing professions are are controlling or at least in conv uh, influencing the direction of architecture. Uh, I mean, the uh, marketing guys are. Are responsible for star architects and for branding. Those are marketing terms, and and that's dominating a lot of what we're doing. So, how can we do better? What do we do differently? Is it a matter of architects just picking up books and making extra time to read, or is there something else that we need to do? We need to get. Uh, human nature, uh, as I've described it here, into the mainstream of our education. We do some of it, and as a matter of fact, there are individual courses that are very sophisticated uh, in this subject, but it's not the mainstream yet. Uh, and so until it is the mainstream of education, it's going to be it's, it's not much. Not a lot is going to happen. Now that can happen quickly. I mean, look how fast uh, we we got a bunch of leaders in the profession who are serious about um, about sustainability. Um, you know, there are a lot of leaders in the profession who are not not interested in sustainability as well. But at least at least as a good understanding of uh, a widespread understanding. And again, as I said, not just in some privileged elite, but in a broad spectrum of architects.
context coming out of school. Uh, understanding and appreciation of uh, how we can't continue at the same uh, in the same ways we have in the past. Once I discovered them, and I think, and, and once the people who I work with uh, discover uh, what's been learned and what's being applied, um, it does seem like we've been blinded by by a whole bunch of ideologies. Uh, and now, you know, decon- with deconstruction, we've deconstructed virtually all the ideologies that we used for guidance in the past. Uh, and we're back to our biological selves and the natural world uh, for a new, bi- a new ideology that we're talking about. And of course, it's our selves and the natural world that's the source of ideologies in the first place. And and if once you study it, you think, wow, that's just simply common sense. I need to thank Bob for all the help and guidance that he's given me uh, throughout this whole process of getting the podcast going. Um, it actually took better part of two years, more than two years, for us to put these interviews together and get it all into uh, the format that you just heard. Um, Bob hosted me in his home. I went to visit him in California. We did an interview there. The recording wasn't all that great, so we came back together over the phone and recorded that last year and had a few have had a few conversations since then. Um, I hope you understand now why and how this book and and more than the book, Bob's work, which includes those decades of research and that, that constant spirit of inquiry and curiosity, are really the foundation and the roots or the soil or something of this, of this show. Um, because this is my own version of that same sort of line of inquiry and curiosity. If it's not clear at this point, I'll go ahead and say that uh, I highly recommend this book. I think that it's something that every architect or designer should have on their bookshelf, if only to pick up and look through every now and again. Uh, I'll admit it's it's really dense. There's a lot of information in here and a lot of references. Um, I mean, I look at Bob's bibliography and I see you know three or four dozen more books that I need to read and have on my bookshelves. Um, some of them, as you heard, explicitly about architecture, and many of them not. And if you keep listening to the show, I expect that you'll find a similar a similar vein or veins of a, a branching of uh, subjects and fields of study. What's maybe most important about all this isn't just the the spirit of inquiry and curiosity, as I've said, or just the sciences, but this spirit of introspection, this notion that we can examine ourselves and learn about ourselves and we can respond to that learning by building with that new knowledge in mind. And in effect, we create this feedback loop of building based on what we've learned and learning from what we've built. 
to wrap this up, um, I hope Bob won't mind if I use some of his words to conclude um, from his book, quote, This new kind of revived, rigorous humanism would keep us learning, reinvigorating our curiosity and the courage to explore. Then, as our most talented, visionary pioneers apply out on the land, a more comprehensive understanding of human nature and the natural world, as they take another step forward in the modern revolution, and as we see the new wide-open opportunities on the cutting edge of design, this broader, deeper humanism will come to look, once again, like common sense. End quote. Thanks a lot, guys. We'll talk to you soon.